the Grok Science Radio Show. I'm Joanna Rowell, and our guest today is University of Chicago biologist Heather King. Ms. King studies an almost mythical creature called the lungfish. Often, mythical beasts have traits we see in nature, but these physical characteristics are combined in unnatural ways. For example, a pegasus is a horse with wings, and a griffin has a body of a lion with the head and wings of an eagle. The lungfish is peculiar because it has lungs like us, but also has gills like a fish. Unlike the pegasus and griffin, however, the lungfish is a real creature. Amazingly, this strange species of fish can help us understand how tetrapods, or land vertebrates, evolved. This so-called water-to-land transition occurred during the Devonian period, which was between 416 and 360 million years ago. It was during this period that lobefin fishes, also known as sarcopterygians, evolved limbs. The lungfish, like the coelacanth, is one of the few aquatic sarcopterygians alive today. And Heather King is going to tell us how studying this living, breathing fish can inform us of events deep within the past. much for being on the show today. I am honored. So let's start with um, some basics. So what, what exactly is a sarcopterygian fish? So there are three major groups of fishes, and I think we're familiar with all of them. The first group are sharks, so those are cartilage fishes. The second group would be ray fin fishes, or actinopterygian fishes, and those include things like trout or goldfish or salmon or sort of conventional fish that we think about when we hear the word fish. And then the third group are sarcopterygian fishes. And we probably know a little bit less about them because there are fewer of them living today that are actually fish-like. Mm -hmm. um, so actually, we are lobefin fishes. We are sarcopterygian fishes. And so so I'm, I'm a sarcopterygian. You are a sarcopterygian. I am. So are birds, reptiles, amphibians, and other mammals and a few other species that are still alive today that are actually aquatic and fish-like, including the lungfish, which is the animal that I studied, and the coelacanth that you just mentioned. So the animal you use in your study is called Propterus anectens, which is a species of African lungfish. Yes. So I think probably some of our listeners might never have seen or even heard of a lungfish before. <laughs> so I was wondering if you could describe what a lungfish looks like. Sure, sure. So... They are very cute animals, first of all, I think. <laughs> um, but they probably don't look very much like fish that you might think of when you hear the word fish. So they actually look a little bit more like an eel. They have a really long, skinny body. Mm -hmm. And instead of their fins being kind of big, um, kind of ray fins, like a trout or a goldfish or something, they have these very small, thin, and they've been called whip-like fins. Right. Um, and they can be, the ones that I have in the lab are about maybe a foot long or a little bit larger, but in the wild they can grow to up to three feet long. Three feet. And they're, they're very large. Yes. Um, and they, they live a really long time too, so some of the oldest um, animals in captivity are lungfish. Not the same species, but Granddad at the Shedd Aquarium is an Australian lungfish, mm -hmm. and I think he was, he's been there since 1938. Wow. So they really live for a long time. And in Africa, the ones that I study, Protopterus anectens, they uh, live in these kind of 
swampy, marshy areas that are, have these really complex environments with a lot of vegetation. Um, they also undergo this kind of drought every year, mm -hmm. and they can do this uh, estivating behavior or hibernation, where they actually dig into the mud and make this cocoon and can live like that in this um, hibernation state for a long time. And I think they tend to just eat pretty much whatever they can get their hands on or their mouth on, actually. <laughs> and they have these really great um, kind of crushing tooth plates, so they eat a lot of really hard things like snails or um, hard so body things. The snails. They, they crush the snails, yeah. So they live close to the bottom, so they're eating a lot of kind of bottom-dwelling So they're animals. pretty tough. They are very tough. Is there any other animals that eat them? Humans <laughs> can eat the lungfish. Oh. And that uh, hibernation behavior that I described is really useful to the humans because in Africa, if they know where these kind of cocoons are, they can dig them up and have this fresh living fish during the dry season that they can kind of cart around until they're ready to eat it. Oh, that is handy. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if the mucus adds anything to the flavor. I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> these animals are called lungfish. So does this mean that they actually have functional lungs that can breathe air? So they're called lungfish for a reason. They have these I, huge yes. lungs. <laughs> yeah. um, and the lungs are very big, and they run almost the whole length of the body cavity. So they, oh, wow. they, they're very big. And um, they're just these big sacs, and they definitely use them for air breathing. And it's interesting because um, the presence of lungs is actually uh, probably a primitive feature in fishes. So there's another okay. rayfin fish called the um, polypterus that's also one of these kind of ancient fishes and, and that animal has lungs too. So lungs is probably something that modern lungfish had in common with their kind of sarcopterygian ancestors and that's... Well, why would a fish need lungs? Well, I'm not sure. I think that um, in a lot of cases, especially in these complex kind of muddy environments where the modern lungfish live, maybe the oxygen content isn't very high. Ah, yes. And they kind of live in these murky waters where maybe um, if they need oxygen, it would be convenient to be able to go and breathe it out of the, the atmosphere rather than taking it in underwater. Though they do have um, gills, but right. they can use both. Okay. Yeah. So double protection. Exactly. <laughs> I do remember reading that during the Devonian period, the general oxygen levels were much lower. Yes. So that would make sense that they might need an extra way to get air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, yeah, that's, that's one of the explanations. So in your paper, you divide the water-to-land transition up into four separate events, and I'll just read out those four events right now. So one, terrestriality. Two, the origins of digited limbs. Three, solid substrate-based locomotion and four alternating gates that use pelvic appendages as major propulsors. So why did you subdivide the evolutionary transition in this way? What's the purpose of dividing it up like that? The water-to-land transition involves lots and lots of different changes, both functionally and morphologically. Right. And so that's one of the ways, uh, one of the reasons that we broke this transition down, where other scientists have also done this, where you take something really massive and um, sort of I guess, revolutionary, like the water-to-land transition, and try to understand it by breaking it into these smaller events. Okay. And then understanding the order that those events occurred in can really inform how the transition happened. In terms of the first two events, scientists now believe that digited limbs evolved before terrestriality. What's the evidence for this? In the early 1990s, um, one of my co-authors, Michael Coates, and his colleague Jenny Clack published a paper in Nature that described all of these aquatic features of this um, 
Sarcopterygian animal called the Canthostega. Mm. And that animal has limbs, it has digits, and that w it looks very much like a salamander. But they found that um, some features of the tail and the limbs, and I think uh, the cranium, indicated very, um, very much that this was actually an aquatic animal. So that was one of the first clues that perhaps the water to land transition and the fin to limb transition were different, and maybe not, maybe the fin to limb transition didn't necessarily happen after the water to land transition. There were aquatic animals that looked very much like what we would think as terrestrial animals. What about the last two events, solid substrate-based locomotion and alternating gates that use pelvic appendages as their major propulsors? Would you talk a bit about these? So if, you, if you're going to move from water to land, if you think about moving around in water, it's very easy to kind of paddle around and not actually touch a bottom substrate, but you need to have the ability to, to do that before you can actually move on to land because the rules are very different on land. You don't have this nice fluid keeping you afloat. Right. So that's sort of the piece about... Um, the substrate-based locomotion. And pelvic appendages, that was something else that uh, we looked at because this other animal, the coelacanth, which is the other kind of lobed fin fish that's still living, um, scientists for a long time, before they could observe that animal in its natural habitat, they thought maybe that animal would be walking around on the bottom mm -hmm. and maybe using these kind of quote-unquote tetrapod-like gates. And they found that actually they're not. They're moving around in the water like a fish but they are using tetrapod like gates and they are incorporating these hind limbs into the movement, which is very different from rayfin fishes, again, like a goldfish or mm -hmm. a reef fish. They tend to use pectoral fins or the forelimbs for propulsion. Oh, I see. And so a lot of most land animals or land vertebrates use the back limbs, the hind limbs for, for most of the propulsion. So that's just another feature of terrestrial tetrapod locomotion that we could sort of try to place in the sequence of events. You mentioned um, a major fossil find. What was it? Acanthostega? Acanthostega, yes. Um, are there any other major fossil finds that have really um, brought this subject along? Yeah, so for a long time um, there was this kind of period in the fossil record called Romer's Gap, mm -hmm. and that was a period in, in the fossil record where there are sort of fish things at one end and tetrapod things at the other end, and there's this big gap in between them, and, and not a lot was known about how that fish to tetrapod transition happened. And so um, in the last probably 25 years or so, there's been a whole lot of findings to fill in Romer's Gap. And maybe some would say that there haven't been enough to fill in Romer's Gap, but there's certainly more information out there. So Acanthostega was one animal that was discovered, I think, quite a while ago, but there wasn't a sufficient um, description of it until 1991 in the study with Coates and Clack. And then more recently, um, another co-author of mine, Neil Shubin, discovered uh, with his colleagues Tiktaalik, which is another sort of fish-like tetrapod, sort of a fishapod. It's this transitional <laughs> form. <laughs> so it has one of the um, defining features of Tiktaalik is that it has potential um, weight-bearing forelimbs. So it might have been able to do something like a push-up <laughs> with its little fins. Um, and it also has a neck, which is great because that means that the head and the body can move separately from each other. Which, if you think about that, especially from a locomotor perspective, when you're moving, if, you're, if you have to move your head and your neck together, you probably wouldn't be able to move quite in the same way, especially if you're kind of had a body like a salamander mm. or something. There's also been some fossil trackways that have been discovered, and 
I think these are a little bit more mysterious because it's so difficult to tell who the track makers are because you have these prints and you have some detail about the prints, but if you don't know who made them, it's really difficult to tell. So those trackways are very interesting. What do you think are the advantages of using, say, fossils versus using live animals to study this transition? Well, definitely fossils can give us information that live animals can't because it's sort of a, a snapshot of a time that we can't access anymore. Mm -hmm. So definitely fossils are invaluable because otherwise we wouldn't know, for example, that Acanthostega was aquatic or that there even was Acanthostega or that the water land transition even happened. We wouldn't know any of that. Right. Um, <laughs> so that's definitely an advantage. But live animals can tell us a lot too because uh, we can manipulate them. We can see the soft tissues. We can... We can have, see them move. We can see them move. We can have a lot of them and see what the differences are um, between individuals. And so I think that using live animals to look at sort of the evolution of behaviors is a really key piece of the puzzle because if you just have the fossils, you don't know what that animal was doing or what all of it looked like or what the soft tissues are. And the soft tissues, like the muscle, for example, um, are really obviously important for how the animal is moving. So that's definitely an advantage of of the live animals. And what specifically got you interested in lungfish? One of the co-authors, Michael Coates, has a pet Protopterus anectans in his lab. <laughs> and the study kind of began with him sort of looking at this, this lungfish, whose name is Alice, and noting that Alice was walking around her tank with her pelvic fins and noticed that she was doing all of these crazy bending with her pelvic fins and really wanted to understand that. And he brought this up in a class I was taking with him and, and told us that he had all of these home videos of Alice doing this. And that really got me curious. <laughs> like, what is he talking about? And so um, I went over to his office and looked at his home videos and indeed that's what she was doing. And I was really fascinated by this. And so that's kind of how the study began. So I thought, well, we know that Alice is doing this. Alice is Protopterus anectin, so why don't we go ahead and get more of those? Would you tell us about the lungfish fins? What makes them different from other fish fins or from vertebrate limbs? In these lungfish, um, their fins are quite a bit different. And one way that they're different is that they're very, very long. And they don't have a lot of the sort of morphological characteristics that are associated with walking. Mm -hmm. which is something that's really interesting about them because if you were to kind of look at a skeleton of one of these animals, you would probably think that there was no way that it could do a walking behavior because right. it doesn't have feet, it doesn't have hands, it doesn't have digits. Um, it kind of just has this really long, continuous fin. Kind of like a string. Like a string, yes. Yeah. yeah, and so when you're looking at something like that, you probably wouldn't think this is a limb that could walk. For example, in our limb, we can only bend our limb in, what, three places at the at the elbow, at the shoulder, and at the wrist. Right. And in the lungfish, it looks like they can kind of bend continuously along, or many places along the length of the fin, and they actually create a functional foot um, mm. every time they step down. And it seems like um, they can kind of bend this stringy, whip-like fin into this, you know, quote-unquote foot region whenever they're contacting the substrate. So that region can change. And that's very different from our limbs because we're really constrained by our anatomy. Uh, can you tell me about your experimental setup? Yeah, so we did uh, something really simple. Um, we basically just took a big tank, two foot by two foot tank, with still water, 
and we put a mirror underneath it at 45 degrees so that uh, we could see what was happening from underneath the tank with a camera. So we could kind of train the camera on the mirror and observe the fish from below. And uh, I added a kind of plastic grid to the bottom of the tank because we found out quickly that without that, the fish walking around um, were having a lot of trouble on this kind of slippery glass bottom. Mm -hmm. But essentially, we just kind of filmed them for hours. So I spent an entire summer um, with this little video camera for hours at a time, kind of letting the fish do whatever it wanted to in the tank because we weren't really sure what kind of behaviors we would see. I think I have about 80 hours of this tape mm. in the lab right now, and that was just the preliminary data. So we also built another tank where we could look at the side of the animal and the bottom of the animal at the same time, and that's how we were able to see that the animal was lifting up off of the bottom and also seeing that um, they were doing all of this bending in a lateral view um, during walking. And how did you analyze all that data? Um, essentially, we just kind of took digital points on the animal to track movements over time and then looked for patterns in those movements. Okay, so it's a very quantitative procedure. Definitely, definitely. You conclude, ultimately, that the African lungfish is capable of bipedal locomotion, mm -hmm. both in terms of walking and bounding. Mm -hmm. Would you describe these behaviors? Sure, sure. So you think about two limbs mm -hmm. and the sort of ranges of movements that those limbs could, could uh, produce in relation to each other. So you could have both limbs moving at the same time, or you could have both limbs moving completely out of phase with one another, so alternating. So it's like a walking or a hopping. So the, the alternating gait is the walking, and that's when the fins are completely kind of 180 degrees out of phase. And then the bounding is this hopping where they're moving synchronously together. And they really move? Do they move far with these individual? Yeah. Yeah, they can, <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> surprisingly. So that's one of the reasons that we think the lungs are important, because... Obviously, they have these very small fins, and if they were on land, they probably wouldn't be able to produce a whole lot of force. Mm -hmm. And also, they're bipeds, right? So their pelvic fins are pretty far back on the body, and if they were on land, they might just kind of plow their noses into the dirt, <laughs> <laughs> which would not be very efficient. But maybe because they're underwater, and because they have these lungs, so they have this buoyancy at the front half of their body, these little tiny fins are able to produce these movements underwater. If you think about when you're in a swimming pool or something, and even if you're just like waist high in the water, you can kind of do this bounding, kind of <laughs> floating walk run thing underwater, and you can go pretty far with, a, with really small movements. And so we think maybe <laughs> the fish are, are doing something like that. <laughs> Your study has shown that lungfish use their hind fins or their pelvic fins for bipedal walking. What do they use their pectoral fins for? That's a really good question. So. We found, we did not find them being used in locomotion, at least regularly and rhythmically. We did see, and especially in the first figure of the paper, there may be a couple of times where they seem like they're maybe kind of pushing off a little bit with their pectoral fins, and maybe like if we were walking around, because we're also bipeds, you know, if we were stumbling and we had to push against a wall or something to steady mm -hmm. ourselves, maybe they're using them for something like that. But um, there's been sort of ideas in the scientific literature that perhaps these fins are sensory and they're kind of like taking in information from the environment. And there's been some reports that there are even taste bud-like cells on the pectoral fins, though I have not seen any 
data to substantiate that, but it's very interesting. Um, and that might be something that others might look at um, to figure out kind of how, how the rest of the fish is, is working. So we've kind of talked about this throughout, but I thought maybe you could capture it. But how does your result that these fish walk and found despite their mm -hmm. tiny little fins, how does this really impact our knowledge of the water to land transition? So one thing that it's potentially telling us is that this behavior of walking and bounding and moving, um, propelling yourself against a solid substrate evolved prior to terrestriality and prior even to digited limbs or you know conventional limbs like a tetrapod limb. So that's kind of gets back to this ordering of um, right. these traits. How do these traits evolve in this lineage? So that's one way. And then another way that I think this impacts the water to land transition is as I've said before many times, this does not look like a limb that could, that should be able to walk. Right. So this really, for me anyway, it really calls into question some of the things that we think about a lot of these fossil animals. And can we assume, for example, that all of these sort of fish-like um, sarcopterygians with fins were, you know, how do we know that they weren't walking? How, you know, we need to be really careful about um, the types of function that we assign to these fossil animals, because if we were to find a fossil of Protopterus synectans, I'm sure it would be classified as a non-walking um, fish thing that didn't didn't have any ability to do the behaviors that it in fact does do. So near the end of the, your paper, you ask the question: You say, if small whip-like fins are sufficient for submerged substrate-based locomotion. Why did aquatic tetrapods evolve robust appendages? Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on this question? That is like the key question to me, because if this tiny little limb is capable of these behaviors, then why, why would this group evolve these big, meaty, fingered, digited limbs? And so I don't know. I think one possibility could be that they're, they're, they need to grasp onto things. They're holding onto something. Maybe they, they need to paddle or something, they need a big surface to move a lot of water, and maybe that was co-opted for walking later on, but um, I think that's a mystery. So I recently read a quote by Albert Einstein that reminded me of your research, and that quote is, everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it is stupid. So in what way do you think the lungfish is a genius? I think the lungfish... Is a, and that's a really interesting quote because probably <laughs> <laughs> no one would believe that the lungfish could walk. I don't know if it could climb a tree, but um, <laughs> maybe the lungfish is a genius because it's underestimated and it's able to do these things anyway. Even if no one believed in it. Thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, it was thank you. Great to have I you had here. a fun time. it for the show today. If you're interested in hearing more from us, you can find our website by googling the Grok Science Show. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, so look for us there. Thanks for listening, and please do tweet or post to us on Facebook or our website. We'd love to hear from you. For the Grok Science Radio Show and Forrest Golden, Elise Kovic, Frank Ling, and Charles Lee, I'm Joanna Rowell. 